Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It is Martin Luther King Day, and as we do each Martin Luther King Day here on Detroit Today, the second half of the show, we're going to hear King's I Have a Dream speech, which was delivered here in Detroit just a little bit before it was delivered in Washington. But first, in her speech while accepting the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes a week ago, Oprah Winfrey brought up a couple names of black women who led with strength and conviction. One of those names is really familiar to us, especially here in Detroit, Rosa Parks. The other name, though, is a little bit less familiar, Reese Taylor. Taylor was raped in 1944 by several white men, and against all odds, she pursued legal action against her rapist. She was a woman who fought for justice during the Jim Crow era. Reese Taylor died last year, but her legacy lives on now through a speech by one of the most famous black women in the world. Our guest this morning had the distinction of speaking with Reese Taylor while she was live and has written extensively about Reese Taylor. Danielle McGuire is an associate professor of history at Wayne State University, an award-winning author and historian of racial and sexual violence. She wrote a book titled At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape, and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. Danielle McGuire, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you and I have known each other for a while, and I'm really familiar with your work. So I know the name Reese Taylor from you. I was surprised, I guess, like many other people in America, to hear Oprah Winfrey stand up at the Golden Globes and invoke that name. But I can't imagine that my surprise was anywhere near <laughs> what uh, yours was, given the amount of time you've spent really trying to, to I guess, excavate this story from the, the, the basement of history, which is where it has been uh, sort of consigned to, but, but also to, to bring forth the themes that emerge from this story that tell us a lot about what this country was like during Jim Crow and what it has been like since. The devaluing of black women and their stories uh, with regard to sexual violence. Yeah, I was absolutely astounded when she said Reese Taylor's name and then told her story. I, I, I sort of stood still in my tracks. <laughs> um, but I had just returned from Alabama where I had, I had been at Reese Taylor's homegoing ceremony, and I, I couldn't think of a better tribute yeah. to her um, and to uh, her efforts to um, attain justice. Right. And so, you know, for— for Oprah Winfrey to use that platform, especially in this moment, this Me Too moment, this moment of reckoning, um, at, you know, on television at the Golden Globes, yes. um, was really important. It reminded everyone there that black women are at the center of this struggle, have been at the center of this struggle, and that that struggle has been ongoing for for really centuries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let's start with just who Reese Taylor was and why her story is important. Well. You know, so much of what we know about Reese Taylor now is just centered on what happened to her, and and that's really important. But I first want to just say that she was this incredible, loving, and gracious woman who mm -hmm. loved to sing and loved to go to church and welcomed me into her home and, 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 you know, told me, you know, about these horrible events and what life was like growing up as a black girl and woman in the Jim Crow South. And, 
you know, not many people are willing to open their doors to strangers and tell right. those stories. So, um, so she's just really an incredible woman, and so is her family. But we know her because in 1944 in Abbeville, Alabama, she was walking home from a church revival, and a carload of white men um, kidnapped her off the street, uh, drove her to the edge of town, and, and gang raped her at gunpoint. And they threatened to kill her if she told anyone what happened, which was, you know, a really credible threat in Alabama at the time. But she spoke out nonetheless. She told her husband, her father, and the local sheriff the details of the assault. And um, because Abbeville was Rosa Parks' father's ancestral home, I think word traveled um, up to Montgomery where Rosa Parks was, and the NAACP promised to send their best investigator. Of course, that was Rosa Parks, mm -hmm. who had been an activist for many years. She cut her political teeth defending the Scottsboro Boys in the 1930s. And so she came to Abbeville at great risk to her own life and, um, and took Taylor's testimony. And they launched this incredible movement that went national, even international. Uh, the Chicago Defender called it the largest campaign for equal justice uh, to be seen in a decade. And um, I think it set the foundation. It laid some of the infrastructure for what would become the Montgomery bus boycott and yeah. then the modern civil rights movement. Yeah. And it, it, what's interesting to me about it is that, it, you know, and this doesn't, I don't think, minimize Recy Taylor or her story at all. But but there are many instances like this that are less well known that lead up to the events that we're all super familiar with, right? The yes. the, the bus boycott, the march on Washington, uh, the other the other sort of high profile events that took place during the civil rights era. There were these these, these smaller things that, in some ways, were freighted with a lot more danger. Uh, and and a lot more courage on the part of the people uh, who undertook them. Absolutely. You know, the Montgomery bus boycott, for example, has a past. In some ways, it starts with Recy Taylor, but between the 1940s and the 1950s, when it really took off, you have a series of um, rape cases mm -hmm. that black women and um, black activists organized around and worked to um, secure justice. So in 1949, for example, Gertrude Perkins, a young mother um, who was walking home from a party, was um, picked up by the police, uniformed police officers, driven to the edge of Montgomery and brutally raped. And then they left her on the side of the road. She immediately went to her minister's house, Reverend Solomon Say Sr., and he took her back to the police station so that she could identify her assailant. Say who it was. Yeah. Imagine the courage that that took. Yeah. You know, I mean, this the police raped her. Right. And so, you know, and, and of course, you know, they were not going to hold a lineup or, or enable her to point out who had assaulted her. Um, but her going there, her speaking out took enormous courage. Um, and the community came together to rally behind Gertrude Perkins in 1949. In 1951, a young girl named Flossie Hardman was raped by her employer. She was a babysitter. And I read so many stories wow. about young black girls who were babysitters for white families who were assaulted by the father in that family, you know, who had nowhere to turn to and who often, you know, mostly never got any kind of justice. But in 1951, Flossie Hardman was, was raped by... Um, as she was babysitting by the man of the house. Mm -hmm. And he he owned a grocery store in the black community. His name was Sam Green. Well, you know, there was no way Flossie Hardman was going to get justice in the legal system. The entire Jim Crow system was wired to... Set think, up to deny that. Totally set up to deny that. Yes. And to deny that black lives mattered, anything like that. 
So the uh, African-Americans in the community, the same people who rallied around Reese Taylor and around Gertrude Perkins, they said, you know, Sam Green's grocery store wouldn't be in business without us. So they boycotted it. Yeah. Wow. And, and almost immediately his store went out of business. So that was an alternative form of justice. And it also laid the foundation for what a boycott could do. Right, right. And, and I, I want to make a point of, of departing here to go back even further. All of this has its roots in slavery itself, which, of course, is not just about uh, the devaluing of black life to the level of property, but it's also about the devaluing of black female life to sexual object. I mean, and sexual object that is owned by someone else, the idea, the prevalence of rape uh, and, and brutal rape, serial rape on the plantations uh, sets the stage for all of this in the, in the subsequent years through reconstruction and certainly through Jim Crow. Absolutely. From slavery through the bulk of the 20th century, white men assaulted uh, and raped black women with absolute and utter impunity. Um, And, you know, the whole system of slavery was designed to not just exploit black productive labor, but really to fully exploit black women's reproductive labor. Mm -hmm. It's how the system of slavery was maintained after the transatlantic slave trade was closed. And um, and it's how white men and women accrued power and maintained their position atop the racial, economic, social, political hierarchy. I mean, mm-hmm. this is how they did it. Um, but this is the other thing. Black women at that time also spoke out against sexual violence. So yeah. we have Celia, a slave, right, who who murdered her master and and burned his body in a <laughs> fireplace um, and was charged with murder. But but she did that to escape the years of rape and assault that he had committed against her. Harriet Jacobs um, escaped slavery and then wrote about her master's lechery in an 1860 um autobiography, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And she used that to spread the word about abolition and why it was so necessary. And black club women spoke out against um, lynching, but the flip side of that, which was rape and sexual terror that was used to undermine um, black freedom after emancipation. And so I feel like black women's struggle against sexual violence began... um, in, in the throes of that system and as a necessity of getting themselves free from that system. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the life and story of Recy Taylor and the history of racial and sexual violence in America. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It is Martin Luther King Day, and as we always do here on MLK Day, a little later in the show, we will hear King's I Have a Dream speech as delivered here in Detroit right before it was delivered in Washington. But now we want to continue our conversation with Daniel McGuire, who's an associate professor of history at Wayne State University and an award-winning author and historian of racial and sexual violence. She wrote a book titled At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. We are talking about Recy Taylor, who recently was mentioned 
by Oprah Winfrey during her Golden Globes acceptance speech for the Cecil B. DeMille Award. Reese Taylor was a black woman who was gang raped by several white men in Alabama in 1944 and against all odds pursued legal action against her rapists. Uh, Danielle, I want to talk about Reese as a person. You knew her uh, and you spoke to her a lot. How did she feel about her personal story here? Um, she, I think, she's very humble. She never sought the spotlight. Um, I think she would have been uh, proud that Oprah called out her name and told her story and recognized the risks she took. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it it also would have been um, out of her comfort zone a little bit. <laughs> you know, that wasn't the kind of person she was. Um, but, you know, the whole family, I think, ha- is just really inspired by her, by the life that she led, mm-hmm. by the way that she continued to thrive and to love and to um, build community and family and faith. So so much of what is important about her is not just that she spoke out, but about the life she lived after she was assaulted. Right. At her homegoing, um, the minister who, the family minister, Brother Johnson, said her storms made her better, not bitter. Wow. And I think that wow. that's an important message yeah. uh, for all a of us. A very difficult message, though, yes. I think, to internalize, right? Yes. Um, it's something that sounds wonderful. Right. We'd all aspire to that. But right. to really live that, uh, if you're someone like Reese Taylor, is just uh, amazing. Right. She left Abbeville um, for Florida because she needed to escape the town because it was too hard to live in a small town so close to her assailants. That must have been absolutely terrifying. And, of course, they firebombed her home after she told the sheriff. So the risk was very real. But it also meant separating from her family, which was very hard. She came from a very large and close-knit family. But she went to Florida and made a life for herself. Um, Her daughter was and granddaughter was um, killed in a car accident in 1965, and and that was just gut-wrenching, horrible tragedy for the family. Um, but her one granddaughter um, had children and of her own and you know has an extensive family now in Florida. Um, and when I spoke with Reese Taylor, she didn't dwell on the negative. Um, but again, you know, I'm a stranger. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not part of that everyday lived experience. Right. Um, but, I, but I do think that um, her faith carried her really far. Yeah. Talk about why you think it's been so difficult to get this, um, this story the kind of attention it deserves. I mean, it's it's remarkable that Oprah Winfrey stood on that stage, uh, you know, in front of all of those uh, celebrities, but then, of course, on a world stage, uh, right. the number of people watching and, and invoked her name. But that's a long time coming in in many, many ways. And, and as someone who, you know, wrote this book seven years ago... Uh, uh, talk about why it hasn't resonated until now. I think a few different reasons. One is that when we think about the civil rights movement, um, it becomes very personality-driven. We mm-hmm. think about individual personalities, mainly Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. his speeches, his oratory, 
um, and Rosa Parks. But mm-hmm. we only think about Rosa Parks as sitting down on the bus that day as right. a little old lady who, you know, tired feet. Um, <laughs> we don't think of the radical activist that she actually was, right. uh, who's, I think, so well reflected in that photo of her, uh, the, the the jailhouse photo yes. they take of her. The look on her face yes. is not of a scared oh, old no. woman. Oh, no. She was an experienced yes. military she knew what she was race doing. woman. Yes. Yes. And so, and the other thing is that I think that for so long, historians at least, um, didn't see sexual violence and rape as a civil rights issue. They focused on voting rights, access to public accommodations, you know, getting a seat on the bus or a seat at the lunch counter and mm-hmm. the theater. Um, and those are all really important. But if you listen carefully to what black women were talking about, what people on the ground were talking about, local communities, it's really about... Um, you know, the the inability to move through the world without being touched, without being hit, without, you know, the, the vulnerabilities they faced physically. Yes. Um, and so, you know, if you leave out that kind of analysis, then you only get a portion of the picture. Yeah. But of course it's important. I mean, if, if, if we know that um, that rape was endemic to slavery— why would it not continue after emancipation? That's right. What and why would, would that would, not be What would have been the lever that got pulled that would have changed all of that? Right. Certainly not Reconstruction. No. Uh, Jim Crow pushes it back the other way. That's uh, right. And makes it easier for people to do that. Much easier. And so, you know, Reese Taylor speaking out in 1944, all of the other women in the 1940s who, who spoke out, and there were a number of them, um, and black organizations who used the wedge of World War II and the war for democracy to try to eke out some justice in the United States um, made it possible for black women in the 1950s to speak out against sexual violence and to get some convictions. One of the first big convictions was in 1959 when Betty Jean Owens, a college student at Florida A&M University, mm-hmm. um, was able to um, testify in a Jim Crow courtroom and, and actually get a life sentence for her assailants. That was huge, and yeah. and that was a catalytic event. It led to convictions elsewhere that summer. Mississippi didn't send a white man to uh, life in prison for raping a black girl until 1965. Wow, wow. He appealed, though, in 2005, and his appeal was denied. So I know for a fact that Norman Cannon, uh, um, um, Rosalie Coates' assailant, was actually in prison for his entire life. Wow. But that, but that's 1965. But that's 1965, that's, right? A uh, hundred years yes. after the end of the war. And and of course, the Loving versus Virginia case, yes. you know, that really, you know, ought to be recognized as one of the last, the ban on interracial marriage, which is rooted in colonial yes. um, laws, uh, wasn't overturned until 1967 yes. in the Loving versus Virginia case. That really ought to be seen as one of the last sort of emancipatory right. Uh, <laughs> right. movements. Yeah. Um, last pillars of slavery to fall um, because so much of what was possible in terms of raping black women with impunity was rooted in laws like that that denied black women legal status. Agency at all. Exactly. So so what we're looking at is just, you know, an incredibly long history and 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 an equally long and hard fought struggle against that history. Yeah. Yeah. Danielle McGuire, associate professor of history at Wayne State on award-winning author and historian of racial and sexual violence and author of the book At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape, and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. Thank you so much for being here. You're on welcome. Today. Thanks. All right, up next on MLK Day, we will hear MLK's 
I Have a Dream speech delivered here in Detroit just a little before it was delivered in Washington, D.C. Stay with us on Detroit Today.